You're listening to Hello Vancouver, and I'm your host, Temple Lentz. Today, we're going to be speaking with State Representative Monica Stonier from Washington's 49th Legislative District, which is essentially West Vancouver. Monica just got out of the third and hopefully final special session for the legislature, and we'll find out how it went for her. I'm speaking now with State Representative Monica Stonier, Democratic Representative for Washington's 49th Legislative District. Hi, Monica. Thanks for joining me. Hi. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. So you are here hot on the heels of just ending the third special session for uh, for the state legislature. Uh, welcome home. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> so that means that what special <laughs> sessions are is 30 days after the close of the main legislative session for the year, uh, it's a special session that, that the governor can call. And there have been three of those. Mm-hmm. And so now we're finally out. The governor has said no more special sessions. And what? Uh, so what has been accomplished? Well, we finally passed an operating budget. That's great. That was really the biggest challenge, I think, um, for the general, the regular session was just how do we get to a point where we can agree on the revenue that's needed to pay for our this year's biggest challenge obligation to fulfill the McCleary uh, requirements. And that took some time. It took longer than it should have, in my opinion, because the negotiation didn't actually start till the very end. And um, our work is a little bit more laborious than just coming to the table and making a quick agreement. So when the negotiators from the four caucuses are not willing to actually exchange paper and ideas and collaborate, um, we just get put off into special sessions. And that's been real frustrating for everybody. Yeah, it seems like more and more there have been regularly special sessions and that it's almost as though it, it seems like it's kind of expected that mm-hmm. that's how it's going to get done, that during the, the regular session, there's a lot of kind of busy work, but then the hard negotiations don't even start until close to the end. Is that is that what has been happening or is that just how it might seem from the outside? No, I think that's absolutely what's happening. And we've seen a couple examples of that this session's. parenthesis s parenthesis uh you know i think it's really unfortunate i'm reflecting now on an article that i read not too long ago that a friend posted about how these special sessions are making it less possible for 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 a citizen's legislature, for people that have jobs and families and do reflect um, the embodiment of our communities to actually serve in the legislature. You know, that, that, that it limits who is, who's able to participate. And absolutely, there's there's a number of reasons why we have to fix it. Not only is it inefficient, not only is it, you know, um, in my view, um, disrespectful to our, our citizens, but it's also a real problem and a barrier to people like me with a family and a job to participate as a legislator. Yeah. So you say it's something we need to fix. How do we even start fixing that? You know, the challenge this last um, session, I would say, has been, like you said, the negotiating starting so late in the process. And that has a lot to do with who's in control of leadership. Um, of course, in the House, the Democrats are in the majority. And in the Senate, um, the Republican uh, coalition caucus is in um, control. And in the past, when we have had Republican um, elected officials that were collaborative and recognize, you know, how government should work, even if we don't always agree, 
the negotiations would start early on. And, you know, I've heard reference to Senator Zarelli, who used to serve in the legislature as somebody who we may not have agreed with politically, but he also knew about what you could and couldn't do to a state budget that would have lasting impacts. And we didn't necessarily run into the same kind of conflict. So I think it personally has a lot to do with who each caucus elects to their leadership and whether or not that's going to be somebody that comes to the table early enough to get the job done for the people of Washington or not. And I think in these last um, several sessions, I would say since the um, coalition has kind of been in place in this in the Senate, it's been uh, it's been frustrating to watch the negotiation process start so late that we can't get it done in a general in a regular session. Our reports back from our negotiating team were for weeks and weeks when there was negotiations. They would go to the table. The Republicans would say from the Senate would say, "Are you ready to pass our property tax?" And if the answer was no, we'd like to talk about some other options, then the meeting was over. And so that went on for a a good chunk of time. And um, in the end, there were uh, a couple of options considered and, and implemented. But, you know, unfortunately, in order to get the job done in order in a, in a timely manner that doesn't start shutting down government. We literally had the governor signing in the 11th hour after 11 p.m. the day before government shuts down. And unfortunately, uh, it was with a property tax that I um, voted for because we need we, I believe that the budget itself uh, did right by our, our um, state. Um, but I would have loved to see enough time to negotiate some other revenue options that were a little bit more progressive than um, another property tax. So you'd mentioned earlier the McCleary. And just for anybody who may be listening who doesn't know what McCleary is, that's the lawsuit uh, that was brought against the state to fully fund basic education. Mm -hmm. So that's something that ha the legislature has been trying to work on now for the last few years. Where did that end up in this budget? Well, that remains to be seen. Uh, there are some questions still around it. We've invested, you know, billions of additional dollars over the next biennium in public schools. And that's Fabulous. Our teachers are going to be paid better. Uh, the districts are still going to be able to negotiate key parts uh, of their contracts with teachers. Uh, the school employees, so teachers and all employees from schools will go into eventually in a couple of years into what's called a SEB plan, similar to the public education, the, the, the public employees benefits program. Um, there'll be a school employees benefits program. So that makes healthcare, you know, more affordable for some of our lower paid school employees. We have some who are paying 60% of their take-home income to just have medical coverage. And that's just not a family's friendly budget in our Absolutely. view, which was kind of our tagline. Um, so, you know, we, we've done some things to try and help our school employees so that we can retain the talent we need for kids. The questions that remain are, is it enough? And I think that, you know, the the budget writers feel that they've reached the point where it's enough. Another issue is, is it um, funding that is uh, going to be able to be maintained over time? And because some of the uh, funding was one-time um, transfers, funding transfers, that's a question that remains. They may not consider that sustainable funding. Uh, so that may have to be fixed moving forward. Um, and there may be a couple other issues that the court looks at that we aren't anticipating. One major question is that without a capital budget and without the funds to build the schools to put the children in and hire the teachers that we've taken care of in the operating budget, we aren't able to actually implement what we have funded in the budget. So, um, that may have an impact as well. 
And that is an interesting uh, situation here with we have closed session and the governor has said, okay, you're done. Uh, But like you just said, we have an operating budget, but not a capital budget. So how does how does that work? Yeah, so that doesn't work very well, does it? (laughs) So we have um, investments in capital in the state construction uh, that will not only build schools, but also um, build the the clinics we need for the dental investments we've made um, for people who don't have access to dental care around the state. And particularly another issue is in the area of mental health. And, you know, we have uh, a huge lift coming for this state to integrate uh, mental and behavioral health with healthcare. And Southwest Washington, where we are, uh, is taking the lead on that. In order to do that well, we have to have the capital investments to make sure that we are creating a delivery um, model that will work for the state. So it's really important, particularly to Southwest Washington, to make sure that capital budget comes online. So, so the way it works is we have we have no capital budget. We have heard tens of thousands of jobs will be lost. Um, you know, contractors are pausing, um, architects, engineers are pausing their work because they can't continue if there isn't going to be funding available. Um, add to that our daybreak youth services here in the county. Yesterday I was at a groundbreaking for um, Bridgeview, which, you know, obviously the lack of a capital budget was a topic of interest at that groundbreaking, but they were able to secure a bridge loan that will allow them to continue until the capital budget comes online. And they're only able to do that because they know that our Southwest Washington delegation is united in making sure that that gets funded. So there's, there's, you know, the, the, um, there's not a lot of question about whether or not that will continue to be a priority for our region. Um, but they had to go seek a, a loan to make sure that things are covered. And that's, you know, rare and, and a sign of the incredible support this community puts in a project like Bridgeview. Uh, if any projects are lacking that kind of unified effort from the community, they're not going to have that option available to them. So tens of thousands of people will be out of work. Projects are at a halt. We can't match bond dollars for school districts around the state to build the schools that we need to reduce class size. Yeah. And that was, there was a bond, the the Vancouver school district Mm -hmm. just did a huge one Mm -hmm. for a lot of work that has been delayed for years. So this will affect that, that they Mm -hmm. won't be able to get the funds they were expecting from the state to make that work. Right. And I think, you know, I think that's why you're seeing editorial boards from one corner of the state to the other frustrated and um, rightfully pointing the fault at the Senate Republicans for holding up this capital budget for an unrelated bill. So let's talk about that unrelated bill. So that uh, Hearst is what it has gone by. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's about water rights and sort of at least to sort of the layperson looking from the outside and just getting occasional updates. It seemed like that's something that just popped up here at the very end. And we hadn't heard anything about it. What what the heck is Hearst? So Hearst, uh, the Hearst decision that was, I think it wasn't even very long ago when the court uh, made the decision, but basically the issue is that there's a misunderstanding that um, if you own property, you also own the water. The water rights are unrelated to the property rights. So um, people who have senior rights to water, like maybe a city or um, one of the uh, or one of the groups that's come up quite a bit is the tribes, um, but it, they're not the only ones. There are cities and counties that also have senior rights to waterways. And if somebody up the stream starts drilling wells, they may 
impact whether or not that senior right holder has the ability to provide the water that they're supposed to be able to provide for the municipality or the tribes. So being able to just drill wells wherever you want to is starting to affect that. And that's what the case, the court case was about. So now we're in this stage of like trying to figure out how do we mitigate that process of permitting wells. Um, the Department of Ecology, of course, has handled that for, for a while. And now we're asking cities and counties to handle an issue that they haven't mitigated, they hadn't handled, ha haven't handled in the past. And so that's a challenge for them. Uh, this is a very complex issue. And there's a lot of stakeholders involved. And there's a lot to consider. Um, it is unrelated to the capital budget. So you know, we all know that there are issues that don't get resolved in the session that we hope that they'll get resolved. And then when we come back, we work on it again. Many times an issue is worked on in the interim in order to re reach resolution before the next session starts. That's been the um, way business has operated in the past. This is a new tactic to say, unless you agree to our policy with regard to Hearst, we are not going to bring the capital budget for a vote. And, you know, like I said, the, our communities are pretty frustrated that those have been linked. And frankly, if I were a member of the Republican Senate caucus, I would be frustrated too, because I feel like that's just, it, it kind of hangs you out to dry to be advocating for these projects. And then to have your leadership say, well, we're not going to pass it until we get a resolution to Hearst is a little bit uh, disingenuous in my view. And then, you know, they're put on the spot for answering for that to their communities. And I think that would be a really rough place for me to be. Was there, was something specific that they were looking for and just weren't able to get? Yeah. I mean, you know, as far as, um, what one side wanted versus the other, the Republicans in the Senate wanted uh, a policy that we believed actually wouldn't get us out of the lawsuit. The, the tribes would sue and the municipalities would sue um, in a matter of months and we'd be back in court and back to square one. So our concern was that if we pass something just to pass something to get a capital budget, it actually wasn't going to solve the problem and that's not good governance. So we were looking for ways to come to agreement about what a good policy was. And when it was clear that that wasn't gonna happen, uh, we looked to our colleagues in the Republican uh, caucus in the, in the House side to kind of come to, to, to the table and help. And Representative David Taylor um, from Eastern Washington, I understand was very instrumental in bringing some solutions uh, that he thought, you know, maybe we could all agree to. One of those solutions was a 24-month window where the policy itself was suspended so that wells could continue to be drilled um, for a 24-month window part time frame while the legislature grapples with this issue, which you know, the spokesperson for the Republicans that was, you know, really testifying and speaking to this issue as, you know, this is why Hearst is such a problem, came out in support of that policy because that was going to help. Um, but they still didn't want to pass that. And, um, you know, I think we tried to create space and time. We tried to negotiate on policy and they they just similar to what was going on with the property tax early on, just held out until um until we came around and this time we just weren't willing to do it. I mean, it just was it didn't make a good, didn't make sense to pass something that wasn't going to solve the problem. Um, and if they were going to hold up the capital budget over it, then they're going to have to be the ones to answer for it. So with regard to the capital budget and eventually getting one, how does that work? Is it now on hold until the session is called back in January of next year? 
Correct. Um, it's possible that in the 45th legislative district, if the Democrats can pick up a seat there in an election coming up, uh, then we would have the majority in the Senate. And I suppose it's possible that um, all sides would say, let's go ahead and get a capital budget underway before January. We could come back and do that. Um, it's dangerous to speculate in that way, but that's a possibility. The other possibility is somehow some agreement is reached on Hearst. Um, I think that, you know, both sides have dug in and said, this is where our line is. And the other one, it doesn't make sense to go. I mean, I don't see why you would go back now if you've already made the statement that this is what your position is on either passing the capital budget or in Hearst. So um, if that does change and there is agreement, then we can come back if the governor is willing to call us back for another special session, although he's shown some frustration that this is becoming business as usual and has said he's not interested in continuing to allow the legislature to operate in this form or in this manner. So he, he may stick to that. I don't know. He also wants to see a capital budget. So <laughs> we get to, if we get to hers, then maybe, and then maybe he'll call us back for a day to take care of that business. Otherwise you're right. We wait till January and we come back. And if there's some movement, then we'll have a capital budget ready to go. It's been ready for months. Um, and if not, then I suspect we'll is it, something, next year. is it something that would be retroactive? Like since you've had it ready, say it gets passed, say it, it's on hold until January and then it gets passed. Have we, I know that in, in terms of time, we've lost this, you know, last six months of this year. But uh, if it's if it's funded, then would the projects that have been put on hold receive the full amount that they would have been expecting now? Yeah, well, um, I'm hesitant to ask this question, answer this question without capital budget staff here, but I will give it my best shot. There are certain um, projects that come from different accounts that may have some flexibility in their reserve funds, right? So uh, if they do, then they will be able to continue and they will just be very tentative about how much they're continuing. Maybe they're just continuing the very basic operations or, you know, maybe they're just going to kind of wait and see how much their reserve will stretch. Um, some we knew were, we knew uh, people were going to be getting, um, laid off the day after our, our special session ended. So, so in terms of like jobs and, and people doing that work, the money is only appropriated for that long. So once we run out of the time frame, we're done. And so we had folks get laid off, um, as soon as session was out. So, you know, the answer can look a couple of different ways, depending on what department or agency or project has reserves in their accounts. So in terms of retroactive, yeah, I mean, I think that we can still pass the capital budget as it is and that appropriate some funds that was new construction anyway. So the dollar amount doesn't shift on how much something is going to cost unless we run into some permitting issues and things like that. So, so long as the time doesn't go so long that um, the projects themselves are going to cost more money, I think we'll be okay with the current appropriation and having that kind of backfill whatever time was lost. Now, with regard to McCleary, you've done some work this year, think that it may or may not necessarily meet the requirements of the lawsuit. What is the, what's the process from here to determine whether or not it's been met? The legislature will be um, submitting a report to the court explaining how the appropriated funds are supposed to meet the requirements of the McCleary decision, and the court will answer back. What's the timeline on that? I think 
we have about, a, I think a month is when the report is due to the courts. And I suspect a couple of months after that, there'll be a decision. Gotcha. So we should hear something, something this year. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So uh, those are the biggies from from this legislative <laughs> yeah. session, and that's plenty. What were some other things that you worked on or that are in the works uh, from this session or upcoming? Yeah, so one of the projects that I worked on this year, which we'll have to come back and fix further, is one that I that was just really close to my heart, and that was um, the state requires kids to pass the state test in order to graduate from high school, and we had kids who had earned their credits who maybe moved into the state and weren't... A, you know, weren't um, exposed to our state test, but still expected to pass it in order to graduate. Uh, we had kids who were accepted into college and wanting to go off to, into the military and had been accepted that were not able to walk across the stage or graduate this year because they didn't pass one of those tests. So we worked really hard in a bipartisan fashion. Uh, Representative Harris and I uh, worked on it quite a bit here in the Southwest Washington area. Um, Drew um, McEwen, <laughs> I just call him Drew, Representative McEwen um, and uh, Representative Sharon Tomiko Santos um, and Lori, Representative Dory, Lori Dolan. You know, the group of us really worked together to try and find a solution and were able to pass House Bill 2224, which allowed students to graduate this year's retroactive to this year's seniors. Um, but there's we didn't quite get to a full delink saying that this the, the tests aren't required. Um, the challenge with that is this policy is left over from a federal policy, a failed federal policy in the past that the states and the federal government has backed off of. And this it's still kind of a residual policy in place here in Washington. Um, we just believe that if kids are earning their credits and doing the things that the state has said, um, they need to do in order to graduate, they ought to be able to. And the state test is really a gatekeeper for our kids who are most challenged and uh, our kids who are maybe learning English as a second language, but are still able to demonstrate competency in their other classes. Well, that's great. It sounds like a worthwhile, yeah. <laughs> a worthwhile project. It was a great project. It was really great to see students not only hear from Vancouver, but um, see emails come in from kids all across the state and their parents who were so grateful that they finally get the diploma that they deserve. Nice. Yeah. What else? Anything else that uh, was special or interesting? You know, we have a new distracted driving bill. Yes. That I was very diligent about, you know, finishing my makeup and my prep before I got in the car so that I was not <laughs> at risk of being out of compliance in the car. But I finished my coffee at home and did all the things I was supposed to do before I got in the car. So I was not distracted while driving. But, you know, now it's illegal to touch your phone in the car while you're driving, except for one finger touch to activate either a phone call to answer a phone call or to uh, maybe activate GPS, but it should all be preloaded and ready to roll before you or you have to pull over. It's been interesting to hear the reactions from a lot of people in the community. I mean, there's I think that a lot of people are having a hard time saying that it's not a worthwhile uh, law that, yes, there is way too much distracted driving, especially the texting and just messing with the phone. Uh, and then there's a lot of folks who are like, 
I can't drink my coffee in my car. I can't do this. I can't do that. Am I going to get pulled over for eating a French fry? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, so for the record, I suppose I'll offer a little bit of clarification. Eating, drinking, and other things not related to technology are secondary offenses. So if they cause an accident, if they are determined to be the cause of an accident, then your fee increases and your insurance company will be notified. But the primary offense is touching your phone and technology. So that will get you pulled over. The others won't. Having now been trying really diligently myself to follow the law, and even a couple of days in advance, I was like, maybe I'm going to go into withdrawal. So I need to figure out what to do here. Um, I think it's a call to all of us doing radio mm-hmm. to um, to make our shows, to continue to work on making our shows as interesting as possible because <laughs> it's so easy to get bored in the car. <laughs> well, I think, you know, I my my process for this bill was the, the sponsor in the house was my close friend and roommate, Representative Justin Farrell, who's no longer in the legislature, but the Senate, com- the Senate um, sponsor was and Senator mm-hmm. Rivers. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it was a bipartisan effort. Um, but it was really hard for me to feel like it was okay for the state to tell me what I can and can't do when I'm driving. However, you know, Representative Farrell was very good about pointing out to me how many times I'm frustrated that other people aren't able to. <laughs> so even if you took a very self-centered, you know, perspective yeah. and you're worried about how it's going to impact your own life, um, it is absolutely undeniable that regardless of who you are, how skilled you think you are with, um, you know, being able to handle multiple things at one time, the research is undeniable. You are more likely to cause an accident or not see a hazard uh, if you are distracted with technology than if you are drinking or under the influence of drugs. I mean, it is just undeniable. And when she shows me the data and reminds me that my son will be on the road soon, I was like, all right, fine. I'm a yes. (laughs) (laughs) It was just, I mean, once you put it in perspective of public safety, um, it's a real easy decision to make. It's just a hard transition to make. And I remember back in the 80s how upset my dad was when the seatbelt law came out. (laughs) Uh, That was an angry, angry man. (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) But I think, you know, I grew up and not wearing a seatbelt, it feels weird to me. Mm -hmm. So eventually, maybe, you know, for kids now, it'll feel weird to them. Yeah. State Representative Monica Stonier from Washington's 49th Legislative District. Thank you so much for joining me. Always a treat. Thanks for calling and asking me to come in. And that's our show. Thanks again for being here. I'm Temple Lentz, and this has been Hello Vancouver. If you'd like to find out more about Hello Vancouver or check out videos of our live stage show, you can do that at hellovancouver.us. We're produced by High Five Media and look forward to seeing you next time. Thanks. Thanks.